and welcome to the January 2022 edition of the Cinetopia radio show and podcast. I'm Amanda, the founder of Cinetopia and also your co-producer of the show. And I'm here with Jim Ross, my co-producer. Uh, Jim, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Seeing a new year with an ear infection and a cold, so off to yeah, a good start well, there. But, but you know, new year, it'll pick up. Could, could be worse, but you have some really big news because, well, for one, it's your third, it's your three-year anniversary coming up here on the Cinetopia uh, show. So that's quite a long time. Uh, time is elusive, I suppose, now these days. Yeah. But like, <laughs> um, but yeah. So, uh, but big, big news. So you won't be with us for a few months um, afterwards. Uh, tell us your news. Yeah, I'm going to be a dad. Uh, me and my wife Rachel are are having our first baby. Um, so. I probably won't be on the next show or a few after that because there'll be a lot of night feeds going on, mm-hmm. uh, screaming children, that sort of thing. So it's all all very exciting. Um, but I think my my film watching for the next few months will be in stolen stolen hours between uh, you know taking care of a small child. So yeah, no, it's it's very exciting, very excited. Yeah. And Rachel's due around mid February, right? Yeah, yeah, which is why I won't be on the next show because it's probably it, it's you know they say. You know, a couple of weeks either end, but basically the the entire day of February, I'm on like high alert for going to Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. You know, so <laughs> ready to go. Uh, well, I'm particularly this is my my birthday is mid February, so I'm pushing for February 15th. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Um, but you know, any day in February is is, is a very cold birthday usually in most places. Yeah. But um, yeah. we're also back with uh, one of our regulars, Simon. Uh, Simon, how are you? Good, thanks. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Jim. Congratulations again. Um, yeah, I'm I'm good. New year, looking forward to some new films, and uh, I'm in a new location. I've moved to Glasgow, so yeah. during the cold, cold winter, I can <laughs> hunker down and uh, get to the cinema. That's great, and uh, so that means we're we're all now. Uh, most of our contributors, I think, now um, are in Scotland um, for the first time in, in quite some time. But how are you enjoying Glasgow so far? Oh yeah, it's great. Um, really enjoying it there's we're very close to a a huge country park so it's nice to be able to get out in that and see the highland coos yeah it's all all very exciting so highland coos are like right near right near center of glasgow i didn't know this yeah yeah um very close really we're only like 10 minutes from the center on train and Mm -hmm. yet there's you know cows in a field basically five (laughs) minutes down the road it's uh fantastic so yeah. we're waiting for the weather to get a bit better to get out into the hills and stuff and get out into the countryside. But for now, yeah, loving it here. Great. Uh, well, welcome to Scotland. Although I am actually technically speaking to you from Florida, um, I'm doing this remotely. Uh, I decided to get out of the Scottish weather for January. Um, <laughs> seemed seemed like I'd been there for quite some time, rained on a little bit and thought might be a good time to uh, test out my uh, snowbird, uh, yeah, tendencies. Um, so I'm in Florida, uh, checking out the cinematic yeah, landscape of Central Florida right now. Saw a couple films uh, this week, and otherwise, yeah, learning how to fly a drone because I guess that's what I do in Florida, <laughs> you know. And it's a bit ironic because I tend to complain about drone shots in documentaries, particularly Netflix docu series, but. 
yeah, if you need one, it um, might be a sideline business for myself. But anyway, I saw um, I saw a trailer for the Netflix documentary recently, and there were a lot of drone shots in it. They're, yeah, they're like, it's, it's, the, like, it's the standard thing. Standard. It's thing. the beginning of every like docu series start. You know, like a like town neighborhood in yeah. middle Ominous America. music. Ominous yeah, music exactly. as it zoom as the drone flies towards this rural farmhouse or whatever. I, fo- I foresee that stopping probably in five years, but that means I get five years of usefulness out of my drone, supposedly. So anyway, anyone who needs, yeah, some drone shots of, yeah, neighborhoods or something like that, hit me up at some point. I need a couple more weeks of practice, I think. Get back over Edinburgh, flying over Edinburgh Castle. I'm sure that's all fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure that is. Um, I, there's First off, there's like... One reason why I'm doing it here is because you can you can get away with just about anything you want in like Florida right now in general. But um, <laughs> but general but also, you know, there's like in order to fly a drone in the UK, there's so many restrictions and rules. You have to get a license, mm-hmm. um, and also I believe yeah, just a risk assessment. I've I have learned 2021 was the year of risk assessments for me running like a film festival. I'm not an expert, but I have spent most of my time. And now, like, all I have to do is add another risk assessment to my, you know, my project blog of 2022. But, um, yeah, I, it can be done. It's been done before. So, but, yeah, no, Edinburgh, I believe, is impossible to fly a drone over. Yeah. Although I did see some sneaky ones during lockdown that were quite cool, you know, on YouTube. So, to be continued. Anyway, on this show, we're going to be reviewing um, four films that are out, I guess out, <laughs> if you can find some of them, um, in, uh, in the U.S. and U.K. Um, and we'll start with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's newest film, A Licorice Pizza. Then we'll be discussing Apichmong's uh, Weird School's Memoria, um, starring Tilda Swinton. Then we'll be also reviewing Joanna Hogg's Souvenir Part 2, which is coming out soon, I believe, in the UK. Um, it's not out yet, is it? It's February 4th or February okay, 4th. February 4th. Well, we'll look up. I think it's, it's, it's early February anyway. Yes. Um, I, bl- I believe it's out in the US now. Um, and um, yes, Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, where that's been out for quite some time, but it's probably the biggest box office hit in um, the UK and US for quite some time, or at least the US, and around Christmas time. And uh, we decided to leave that to the end because there will be some spoilers and we don't like, well, I, I guess I like spoilers, but uh, we we learned our lesson last month. So um, yeah, liber- liberal use of the bleep button last month. Warning, <laughs> warning there will be spoilers, uh, but it is Spider-Man. So, you know, you, you you've seen it before. In my case, I haven't really, but anyway. (laughs) Let's get on with this first episode of 2022. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair I'm at the girl I'm marry one day. But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go Listen, young lady. But her friend is nowhere to be seen So how'd you become such a hot shot actor? I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. To the seat with the clearest view wow, 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 And she's hooked to the silver screen Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Bob Shizen? 
Barbara Streisand. Sand. 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 Yeah, like sands, like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand. Sand. <sighs> no, like Streisand. Sand. But the film is a sad thing for. This is faith that brought us together. But she's lived it ten times or more. Our roads took us here. She could spit in the eyes of fools. You're not my director. Do you really want to see my boobs? Can I touch them? See you tomorrow. So the first film we're going to review uh, today is Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film, Licorice Pizza. And this film is an episodic tale mostly revolving around the friendship relationship of a teenage boy and a 20-something-year-old girl in the 70s in San Fernando Valley. Um, the film, I mean, the, the main couple is played by two relative newcomers to Hollywood, but not without their own family fame. Nonetheless, uh, Cooper Hoffman, uh, the son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I don't think has been in any other major film um, yet, except this, uh, plays Gary Valentine, the 15-year-old precocious teenager who is already a child actor and on his way to being a budding entrepreneur. Um, and then Alana Hyam, um, from the family girl band Hyam, plays Alana Kane, um, and she's, uh, she's working at Gary's high school, uh, one day when Gary notices her and tries to pick her up and invites her to on a date uh, to the Tale of the Cock restaurant, which is uh, surprisingly was a real restaurant. Um, and she does surprisingly turn up. Uh, and then the film follows their relationship first as first as Alana as his chaperone, as a child actor to New York, um, and then as his business partner and waterbeds, et cetera. Uh, there's also a lot of colorful characters in this film, played by quite notable actors such as Sean Penn, Bradley Cooper, Tom Waits, Ben Safdie. Uh, but it's really about these two characters and the evolution of their relationship that really drives the story, as well as sort of this escapist setting of 1970s Los Angeles and all of its technicolor glory and Americana kitsch with the backdrop of the politics and uh, pretty much what life was like back in the 70s then. Um, so I suppose it's also important to mention that the film is loosely based on real-life film producer and former child actor Gary Getzman that um, Paul Thomas Anderson, or as cinephiles like to call him PTA, uh, knew quite well. Um, and uh, the title, Licorice Pizza, is an, an old record store. Um, I think that's a bit of it in a nutshell, but I'm curious about how you felt about the whole film, both of you. So I really enjoyed it. I, 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 I thought... A film like this lives and dies on the strength of its two leads because um, they take up so much screen time and it's so much about their relationship. Unfortunately, these two performances are amazing. They're, they're terrific and really naturalistic performances from both Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman. Um, and I, I, it reminded me of what Paul Thomas Anderson does best, which is just get good performances from actors and and focus on the relationships between characters. Um, like in, in Phantom Fred, which I preferred to this, but there's a similar kind of focus on relationship dynamics, very different ways, but a similar focus on relationship dynamics between the two films. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and we don't do, do star ratings here, but if we did, any film gets an entire star from me if Tom Waits suddenly pops up. I, I was <laughs> delighted when he showed up in the bar scene. 
I, I turned to my wife in the cinema and said, that's Tom Waits. It's Tom Waits. <laughs> yeah, I had a great time with that. It's, it, it's funny, actually, because I, I um, somebody bought me a Tom Waits album when I was a teenager. And I have to say, I, I think I enjoy Tom Waits as an actor a lot more than I do a musician. To be honest, but I don't think it's, it's not. It's a, you know, it's a, it's fine. I, yeah, I, I, I think I so do I, but, but it's not I'm, quite for me. Yeah. yeah, so do I, but I'm not damning with faint praise the same way you are. <laughs> but, Doesn't he um, grow up as a mummy in um, the Dead Don't Die or something like that as well? Yeah, he's a kind know, of probably. hermit in in the Dead Don't Die. He's um, he's kind of friends with Jim Jarmusch, so he's in coffee and cigarettes as well. Great right, turn right, in yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we're yeah. reviewing Tom Waits at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I I think I'd concur with Simon. I I, I enjoyed this a lot. Um, I don't. It's interesting in that Paul Thomas Anderson is probably one of my favorite working directors. Um, and I was a big. I'd, I've been a big fan of pretty much most of his his work. I I, I don't think I connected with this and Phantom Thread as much as other people have, which is not to say I don't like them. I think they're fantastic films. I, I, I like them a lot, but I think, you know, There Will Be Blood, I think is probably one of my favourite films of all time. Um, I like Magnolia a huge amount. I like Inherent Vice more than most, I think. Um, this one, I'm, I'm, I liked it, and I think as Simon has pointed out, a lot of that is in the performances um there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of visual stuff i like here um as well you know in particular there's one shot that kind of like follows alana through the house and just the, the way that that whole thing is constructed and the way he goes about that i i think is superb but it is mostly in the performances and i'm actually to an extent surprised i maybe like this as much as i can because a comparison that a few people have made and i think it's a very relevant comparison um is there is some similarity here to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when you think about location, timing, uh, you know, the sort of thing it's trying to to capture. But I think, and and as as you'd know from when we did it on the show, I didn't really click with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at all. There were plenty of things I liked about it, but I just didn't, I just didn't connect with it. I think the reason I did with this is I was a lot more engaged with the the two lead characters and their relationship and the weird the weird kind of like dynamic they have where it's romantic but it's not romantic and then suddenly it's romantic again and then it's not and it's kind of like it was more about it was more about kind of what the fact that they seem to seek um attention approval and infatuation from the other what it says about them more than it says about the other person and i found that dynamic in the way that the film kind of like pushed and pulled with that and introduced other characters to kind of you know elaborate more on that i i found it really really well uh put together and like the, paul thomas anderson's films previously have been superb for me in a lot of ways and the visuals is one, but here I think it was really mostly in the script, and I think the performance is bringing that to life. I got very interested in this dynamic and what it was trying to say about the way those two characters relate to one another. So I have a I have a lot of time for this, and that's even before you get into the point where maybe with one exception, which we may or may not get into, it's also it's also a funny film. There's quite a lot. There's a number of set pieces I think are really um, really amusing and well done and well performed. 
uh, in particular one involving a moving truck, um, you know, which is actually surprisingly tense as well. Um, so there's a lot to get out of this film. I think the thing that it all revolves around is the chemistry between those two central actors and i think that uh, i think that's the the biggest selling point of the film and they both do a superb job with it for me uh yeah i i mean i i'll second both of what you said about the two characters uh without the without that that, that working really really well um yeah this film wouldn't work and it obviously it you know it, it does it, it was quite it was quite powerful. Also nice to know that they're both not, you know, they're both newcomers and they're, they, they did such an exceptional job, like, um, you know, pulling this through. I'm not a huge PTA fan and I'm, I'm partially not a huge PTA fan because I can't tell you how many cinephiles of, and, and no, you know, male cinephiles of a certain age that I met who've told me that he, you know, he's God's gift to cinema. And I, you know, like, I like his films, but like, I just, I want someone to explain to me why, because I don't totally get it. I did like Phantom Thread a lot. I feel like I'm liking his work more over time than I did at the beginning. And perhaps this, like, for example, as you mentioned, Jim, it was funny and it was like, it was quite an episodic story. I'm very obsessed with Americana, like, you know, sort of 70s, 80s, um, you know, kits and signs and stuff like that. So the one thing I got out of, and I, I, no, I noticed that obviously once upon a time in Hollywood is dealing with kind of a similar love of this kind of LA that you, you know, that this nostalgic version of LA and, um, you know, Hollywood loves that, but, uh, you know, certainly these big directors love that too. And I think if you were to look at both of those, this one is more about the misfits, like the odd, like the odd side of LA, you know, like San Fernando Valley and Sino or something like, you know, it's much more of like a neighborhoody kind of, you know, the, the people fall between the cracks and, and um, much more of that focus than when, what once upon a time in Hollywood was doing with, you know, what, and, and I liked that. And I also think I read something about how PTA stuff is a lot about like found family and, and, and whatnot. And I think that's what makes this, relationship it's ambiguous right you know it that they clearly care about each other they clearly need each other in some sort of capacity they're kind of building a you know i think the alana said something like oh is it weird that i spend so much time with these you know young boys or something like that and uh i think it doesn't ever feel that weird it feels like they're 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 helping you know that they're they're have they have this ambiguous relationship but they're but it's it's very strong and you can and you can feel it and you can feel what what it means to both of them um, but also just sort of the funniness of some of these, I mean, for me, it's all about the settings. I mean, that's why the restaurant, you know, and the pinball machine, like the pinball palace, like I, I'm dying to go to a place like that, um, you know, and the waterbeds and everything. It really, really painted a scene of, uh, of a place that I, you know, that's why I love cinema, like from, you know, like this, you know, it takes you back to a time that I can't go back to. Um, but I really felt, I really felt I was there. And I do think PTA grew up in that area. Um, and I think there's just, this is a really nice love letter to Los Angeles in a way that I think is way better than I expected. Um, so I'm going to give P PTA a little bit more time, maybe rewatch some of his films. Um, I, um, 
I, I don't think I've done it myself to you, but I think I fit squarely in that demographic that has probably like done that. So I, I, I will apologize on behalf of my demographic. But um, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go go into kind of previous ones of like, but this this one, I think it does come down to largely. It's something we've all mentioned, and it is the, for me the way the script blends with the performances. In particular, there's one. So you mentioned the restaurant, the tale of the cop. There's one scene there in particular that will stick in my head from this film um, quite a bit, and it, and it's, it's actually it's also the scene where the, 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 you know Tom Waits is uh, primarily involved, and that scene um that entire sequence is just so well pitched and it comes it comes a decent chunk into the film so we've kind of got a very good understanding of the characters and their uh Mm. relationship by that point and just the way that that is then all harnessed with the script to create this very intricate kind of like set of shots and performances and the way that that all comes together to kind of explain where the characters are at it's really a nice little summation of why this film works as well as it does because if the script is not on point there in kind of not saying too much but you know providing opportunities in terms of the setup to elucidate what these characters are feeling it doesn't work if the performances are not on point in terms of you know who's making eye contact with who and who's looking where and exactly what sort of feeling they're conveying it doesn't work. And if the editing isn't on point and the shot making isn't on point to kind of convey that tone and, uh, you know, in the parts that aren't reliant on dialogue and then, you know, deciding who to show and when and show your reactions, again, it doesn't work. So it, it's a very good, it's a very good little sequence that shows everything that works about this film. And I think different parts of it also, you know, they'll lean on these different aspects to, to different I can think of things where the visuals were giving me more, where the script was giving me more, and when I thought the performance was excellent. But the, the the point is, they all come together, and I think that's quite a good scene to um, surmise that. I guess the one thing I want to pick up on, just because I think it's been a point of it's been a point of contention with this film, I think a little bit. That I don't particularly want to get into, but the point where Alana, who is in her twenties in the film. Um, said, you know, is it weird that I had to hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends all the time? And I think what's quite interesting about the film is it does present it as a little bit weird, but I think what the what is interesting about the film, what it does really well, is it shows why. It shows why she's doing that, and also it shows why he is also kind of like craving so much approval from Alana and his so And it, it, it's just, it's... I think what's interesting about it is it... Well, what's interesting about it is an interesting dynamic. It's not a very easy thing to define, I don't think, in terms of, you know, Gary being this very precocious, kind of like larger than life teenager, but he's a teenager. He is a kid and he does like stupid kid things. But Alana is an adult, but she still has this sort of arrested development aspect where she doesn't really know what she's doing and then it's kind of like what each emotionally gets from the other i th- i find that a fascinating dynamic and i'm not quite but I, re- I really feel like that the team behind this one kind of captured lightning in the bottle with this relationship and the script that they put it together because i i just i really did find it superbly interesting i couldn't you know i was really engaged with it i'm you know yeah it's 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 a weird relationship dynamic and the film says that it's a weird relationship dynamic. It says, this is weird. 
it, it it's weird how they're feeling romantically towards one another in terms of friendship towards one another. It is all strange and they don't really understand it, but that's what makes it feel real for me. Mm-hmm. Like, because it is weird and represented as such. Um, and to come back to the once upon a time in Hollywood comparison that you both mentioned, I, I think once upon a time in Hollywood struck me as quite cynical and quite, pastiche of uh, this this era of Los Angeles, uh, whereas uh, Licorice Pizza felt very sincere. It felt very real. It, it felt like, like you said, Amanda, like Paul Thomas Anderson knows this, this part of LA, this time, and loves it. And so that came across um, in this intensely joyful and, and genuinely very funny film. And in a way that I think, uh, and, and has a sincerity that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just didn't have for me, um, and that didn't work for me. So to, to talk about the script as well, like you were talking about the script there, Jim, um, I, I did feel like after that scene that you mentioned, the scene in the bar, which is terrific, a real high point, I, I feel like after that, some of the aimlessness of the script starts to show itself. And it begins to feel a little bit flabby. Um, I think, I, think I, I read, yeah, I read a piece once where uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was saying that he doesn't write to a predetermined ending. He just writes characters and then he writes what they do until an ending naturally emerges. And I feel like that really started, it really started to feel like that after that scene, um, sort of around the middle and towards the, towards the end of the film. Um I think particularly around the Bradley Cooper scenes, um, which felt very, they were great fun. I love those scenes. That truck scene is fantastic, but it felt a little extraneous to the story that he was trying to tell. I think, I, I think that's fair. Like, I, I got why that's yeah. in terms of like, it's a music, it's a good, like, you know, and Bradley Cooper, I think, in, in this, what is a very, it's, it's funny compared to like his presence in kind of markets of that, that, that performance is very fleeting, but I mean, it is very good. I think I think that's a fair point. I did, you know, yeah, I, the, I enjoyed stuff things. after that. But in terms of the relationship, right, which we've all said is kind of the key thing, I would say our understanding of that and where it's going, I would say it's kind of plateaued at that point. And it doesn't exactly. mean that it's it's not enjoyable to watch, but I don't think it has. I don't think it fits the same sort of progression after that. It does kind of plateau after that. I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah, they're terrific scenes. I wouldn't cut them because they're great fun. Like you say, that truck scene is incredibly tense but it just, it doesn't quite gel. It certainly was there in, in part, I think, with this whole thing around the OPEC crisis and, you know, and petrol and, and mm. you know, loss of that. And I think that was one point to mention, as you said, you know, the age difference of the relationship being awkward uh, and and uh, that point being very evident from the very beginning. Um, uh, there's other things there that are quite themes that are quite, um, you know, serious, uh, sort of misogyny and, you know, Hollywood and, uh, very much particularly racism. Um, you know, uh, the, I think those two scenes, um, the, with the Japanese, uh, restaurant owner, um, my mouth like dropped, uh, watching those scenes and, um, you know, in part because it was, I, you know, it, it had a tone of 
humor, but to me, you know, obviously it wasn't funny. And, um, um, but also then particularly the Safty scene, I forgot what his name was, but he was the, you know, the, the politician who, yep. um, you know, so these, these, I think the very important things to bring up again, and this not a, a very, this is the time and he's painting a picture of what this time was. It wasn't, it wasn't a perfect nostalgic time, which, you know, we, we can, we can dream about the good old days. Uh, there, there's very harsh realities to all of this. Um, and, and I thought that, that, that obviously was, was clearly his intention, um, with, with all of that, but also to push it along. If, if we hadn't kept going, we wouldn't have gotten to the pinball place, which is my, <laughs> yeah, like true. basically my idea of Nirvana. <laughs> I think, um, one thing I want to pick up on that you said there, Amanda, which I think is an important thing with the, the, the central relationship, actually, is the amount, in terms of Alana's interactions with other men in the film, is so many of them are laced with just overt misogyny, right? And I think in terms of how she then, what she gets out of um, Gary and that relationship and his reaction to it, I think that it's an important contrast point, right? In terms of, and I think there are times where the film tries to do this stuff. And I think the two scenes with um, the Japanese restaurant owner, I see why they're there. I don't, I don't think they work, to be honest. I, I you know, it's, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I brought, I see what the is trying to do. I'm not saying that it, it, doesn't achieve it. I'm just. I don't think it was necessary for the film. Um, yeah, the the humor as such in these scenes is tonally quite different from the humor in the rest of yeah. the film, which is mm-hmm. quite naturalistic and is very funny. But um, this is very over the top. Yeah, I, the, I those lost scenes. It. Yeah, I I, sure. I I would have got rid of them. Yeah. So you know. So I mean, I think to say like not everything about this, you know, because I think we've been quite gushing about this. Though I did like not not all of it works. I but I think it gets the things it needs to work correct. That central relationship, the script, and their trajectory up until kind of like as Simon's pointed out, it maybe plateaus a bit at the end. Um, but yeah, no, I, I engaged with this fully and I had a great time with it. No, I just before we got it, I, I just want to issue a pronunciation correction where I've not said the title of the film quite deliberately because I would be calling it Licorice Pizza. <laughs> I realise I have a vast majority about this, but I have found that I am not the only weirdo who pronounces it this way. <laughs> is that a, is that a what, like, racism? Like no, I think, it, I, I think it might even be like an East of Scotland-ism. Oh, really? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I can't. Well, I can't find anybody outside of like my hometown <laughs> who pronounces it this way. And, and and even within that, <laughs> not everybody's pronounced it that way. Everybody's saying, like you're a weirdo. What are you Just talking about? Certain neighborhood in Dundee. I, I don't know. Maybe so. I even like think. licorice, all sorts would be would be licorice, licorice all, sorts. Yeah. all sorts. Licorice, all sorts. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, None my family's this... from my family's from Aberdeenshire originally, and I've never. No, yeah, no, no. Well, I've spoken to folk in Aberdeen who are like, "What are you talking about?" I've never heard it pronounced <laughs> that way in my life. So, so no, I, I'm aware of the fact I'm in a vast, vast minority here. But this is why I've very... deliberately avoided saying the title up to now. No, 
It's good to know. Um, yeah, I was also thinking when you mentioned in Bradley Cooper that I just it just made me think he is in the uh, probably in the running for supporting actor in Oscars, and we're we're gonna miss you, Jim, during the Oscar season. I feel like you're wow. very disappointed. I'm sure you it, are. To be fair, it might it might give you some room to discuss them. Rather, I can't remember what I wanted. Like you'd have to go back and listen to the Oscar show last year, but I think I just came in with a well, it's all the shit anyway, isn't it? And then that just killed the conversation. <laughs> still well, dead. All so. I know is Smooth sailing for me is if if it actually goes if they're 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 potentially potentially postponing it or whatnot. I've not paid attention, but yeah, um, smooth sailing for me this yeah. this year. Without Oscar Jim, time. without James Cinetopia's five-hour Oscar extravaganza. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. We'll keep it going. The love will <laughs> the love will grow. <laughs> you won't even you won't even recognize it, Jim, when you come back. <laughs> It'll be Oscar twenty four seven, like a whole oh channel. Anyway, um, but yes, no licorice pizza is uh, yes, it's a it is on it's in cinemas. They're sending thirty five millimeters, supposedly seventy millimeter, maybe as well. Um, check it out if you um, love the idea of this kind of film. film we're going to review is Memoria, um, uh, the next film by Ape Chapong, Wirastakul. Um, and Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about this film? So the film, it's another one of these films which I find quite hard to summarize, right? We seem to have at least one of these per show. Um, and I think this is the one from, from this show. Um, so basically where we find ourselves is with uh, Tilda Swinton, who is a British, um, she grows out, I think she's a botanist maybe, but anyway, for the, for the purposes of the film, I'm not 100% sure it's it's a key aspect in Colombia. I have some, seen some synopses describe her as being Scottish, but I don't, I'm, I can't remember where the evidence was for that. But anyway, mm. um, like, if it's in the film, I'm afraid it passed me by, but you know, um, she's a British woman in Colombia and the film opens with within her home. It's very darkened, and then she's awoken or startled by this kind of sudden, very otherworldly sounding thump. Um, and basically, it starts off this film where basically she finds herself fixating on it, uh, haunted by it, thinking about where it comes from. There's a key scene early on where. After she hears this again, she goes to a sound studio uh, and gets an audio engineer to try and help her mix the sound that she clearly is the only one who can hear. And it pops up at different points in the film. Um, and basically, you know, she tries to understand, tries to understand and goes about her business. And, and as we go along, you know, a lot of shots are held for a very long time, um, which I understand is a, is a characteristic of Vida Sethical, the director, but unfortunately I, I haven't seen 
much of his uh, previous work, even though, you know, it's very well regarded and some very well-known stuff there. This happens to be my first one that I've seen. Um, but the, these holding of these shots are a very long time. It creates kind of like this very tense atmosphere, the very dreamlike. And then this sound, which I don't think happens a huge amount during the film, but like many times, um, just punctures straight through it. Um, and I, I got a very strange experience out of this because whilst it is coming at cinemas and by the time this is broadcasting, um, it will be in cinemas in the UK. And, it's, and we might talk about what's happening within the States where there's this very sort of like strange tour idea going on. Um, but as happens so often with stuff on the show, I watched it on screener and I happened to be watching it basically in the middle of the night with headphones on. And the sound design, Christ, I mean, like I'm still on edge from it now. And in particular, this the central sound that is plaguing uh, Tilda Swinton's character, Jessica, throughout the film. It's um, it's quite something. I'm interested to see what the two of you made of it. But certainly that's the the sound design is the key aspect that has, has stayed with me. But what did the pair of you make of it? So a friend uh, saw that I had logged this on Letterboxd, the, the kind of film logging site, uh, and and sent me a WhatsApp afterwards, like, what did you think of it? Was it a film film or was it like an art gallery film? Was it like a film where you go to a gallery and you sit in the little space and watch it for a bit and experience it? And I had to say, it's kind of both at the same time. It, it is, it's very much a film and there is a narrative, but it's also an experience, like an artistic, aesthetic experience, um, heavily structured around sound like you say, Jim, um, and the sound design is clearly key to it textually and metatextually. The kind of the booms and the bangs of the mysterious noises, the recording studio, there's talk about the texture of a guitar, like there's snippets of a lecture on uh, guitar string texture. Um, there's a scene with like a symphony of car alarms. So just sound and the texture of sound is, is, is incredibly important to it. Um, and I, I also saw this on screener, um, but I've got a fairly good sound system and I was watching it on my projector. So it was not dissimilar from the kind of uh, cinematic experience, I think. But it is, it is quite unnerving, the sound design. And, and when those booms come into the soundtrack, it's, you, you feel like Tilda's character, Jessica, in that moment, you, you feel oh, I like... Jumped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one particular scene in a restaurant where she's eating with her brother-in-law and her sister, um, and and the sounds keep punctuating the scene, and it's really tense, like strangely tense. You you suddenly realize how enthralled you are by certain scenes structured around sound, like you're suddenly deeply invested in Jessica painstakingly constructing this sound from this. Uh, sound library um and it's really inter a really interesting experience yeah i mean i i was uh, i of course agree i think i think since we started cinetopia i often bring up the soundscape and how important that is in a lot of films that we reviewed and um i think particularly last we even mentioned that in the last episode of how much the sound uh, design of some of these films like Sound of Metal and whatnot, you know, were, were, mm -hmm. were such wonderful um, primary to these films. But this, obviously, like you said, as a text, as the point of the film is very much about sound, as much as just seeing a sound designer 
um, you know, looking at the qualities of that. So I, I certainly loved that. I didn't have the same system or wasn't listening to headphones as well. Um, so I, and you briefly mentioned Jim, I think it's really interesting the way that this film is being distributed in the US and for mm. people who don't know that, that, uh, that you guys know better than I do, but I read that it's only being shown in art house cinemas for a, like a week, a, like in and, and one place around, uh, around the country, which means pretty much no, you know, very few people are going to get that opportunity to see this in the cinema. So the distributor, Neon, in the States, uh, has announced this, this never-ending release um, where, like you say, it plays for a week in one venue. I think it played in New York City uh, just after Christmas, and it's going to and played in Chicago like the first week of, of 2022. And the plan is that it will do that forever. <laughs> That's clearly not going to happen. But I mean, I, I, I will go on record. To, and see, I think that I think that plan's batshit. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like I like I appreciate that this is like you know like the film wrote it like back in the day. This would be a thing like there'd only be one film canister, right? They would go around place. But like we're not. I'm sorry, we're not. Like this is 2022, and it's a case of you've got one of this film which a bunch of critics, including us on this this show so far, are like lauding, and like hardly anybody's going to be able to see it, you know. And it, so. What I will say, and not just because they gave us a screener for it, the UK distributor, Sovereign, who have released a number of interesting films this year, including Bad Luck Bang and Weeper, well, props to them for not doing this, because I think it's a ridiculous idea. I've seen a lot of people describe it as, oh, it's wonderful, and then, you know, oh, it makes it really special, it means it'll be around for it. No, this is insane. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, I I do think it's muddied the waters for uh, international distribution as well, because people think it's it's all going to be the same as the US. Uh, So, these the friends who text me who said how did you see this how am i going to get to see it also think in the uk it's not being distributed as a normal film um and it's it's such a weird such a weird way to distribute this film (laughs) i find it really amusing and i'm not sure what the point of that is at all except the spec like the spectacle of that i have i have no idea Just, just, just thematically i don't see how it links to the themes of the film which no I don't get it. <laughs> it's just kind of fantastically weird and in a great way for me, but I'm not, you know, I got to see it. Um, but uh, one of the things I would say is that it would be quite great to see it in a cinema, you know, um, and, and we didn't get to, see, you know, it, it seems like the, a film that you would really benefit watching it in, in, a, in a cinema instead of, you know, um, online. Yeah, I think it's... It- I think it benefits from close attention and the kind of close attention that uh, the cinema is all about because there are so many themes of, of paying close attention to the world around you. Jessica is, uh, Tilda's character, Jessica is an orchid researcher and, and somehow that feels like it fits with the theme of paying attention to the world and that they, they talk about the beauty of the world and the sadness of the, the world and it's very slow and contemplative Um and so I think a cinema is the place to see it, not just for the sound design, but because you could immerse yourself in in the the scenes on screen. Yeah, and I think that 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 the observation kind of thing that Simon spoke about. I think we did. so. We spoke about like so many shots are held for quite a long time, and I think the important thing about that is that therefore whatever soundscape that shot happens to be in, 
that's also held for a very long time. And, you know, I think there's subtle things going on with the mix as a shot is held. But the point is, it does that very, and it is quite meditative in a way, but it does that thing where it's held for so long that you start to notice different things in it. You know, the thing that will dominate what you're noticing at the start of the shot or the start of the sequence will be different and it will evolve as that shot is held. And I just, I, I find that very interesting. And it's a case of, it has it has both kind of things in the sound design. It has that kind of, it lets you linger in the space and hear different things and react to different things. And it creates a different feeling as a result. The way you feel at the start is different once it's been held for a while. But it also has that kind of like weird impact stuff with the the mysterious thud, right? So it, it it's kind of, covering the whole thing there's strong impact stuff there's more meditative stuff and i found it very very effective in what it wanted what he was clearly aiming to do with that um and i think if you were to watch this at home in the future you know and you know as we discussed with it i mean like god knows what the weather whether it will be whether it will be in the uk other markets i don't know but if you can watch it with decent sound i think you will get that impact but i think i will 100 percent agree that again you know as with the times we live in if you're comfortable going to a cinema this is one of those films where you're going to get the most impact out of it from there and i think the, like, the last thing i remember saying that about on the show um we said about a few things of course but i think sound of metal was the last one where i thought it was like really a yeah. Core central part of it. I would put this in the same category in terms of how you'll react to it, depending on how you watch it. I have not seen any of uh, Weirasticle's other films, but just from this, and I think I think I kind of was listening to other people review this and said that very similar, like that, like you said, the pacing, these long shots, is very very similar to other work that um, he's done, um, and particularly maybe a film that might get noticed more because Tilda Swinton's in it. Um, and, you know, it's it's uh, in English as well as in Spanish, um, you know, uh, but I really did love the experience of this film in terms of, yeah, it's, it's something like when, you, when you've not seen something like that before, um, there's definitely it, uh, this ob- conversation about observation and I, I just loved it. I, I really, really loved the, um, loved that aspect of it and made me want to see a lot more, but also made me realize. And I think I, again, some, many people have noted this who have reviewed it. Um, you know, how much, uh, yeah, h- how much this was a collaboration between Tilda Swinton and the director. Um, her performance was captivating, incredible. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we love Tilda in Scotland. She's amazing. And to watch her from like the French dispatch, you know, to even Souvenir, which we'll talk about, you know, just kind of constantly changing. I know that this was a collaboration between the two of them for, I think they were planning this film for 17 years. Um, but it really, uh, it's, it's, there's not much dialogue in a lot of, of a lot of the parts of the film. And, uh, she really, the you know, her performance carries you through it as well, as well as this pacing long shot kind of style. And so the combination of, of performance and um, director's vision um, together, I think is, it's really something I'm not seen before. And that always is, and if it's done in a great way, I think this is, it, you know, it's, it's something worth, worth recommending for sure. 
Tilda Swinton continuing her plot to work with every single big auteur director. <laughs> in 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 some ways, the the start of the film reminded me of it, it's sort of just Tilda in this big empty house. It reminded me of that Pedro Almodovar short film from last year, which was basically just Tilda and the director. I didn't see that. No. What was it called? The Human Voice. The, the Human, human Voice. Yeah. The yeah. Human Voice. All right, so we highly recommend if you can see this film um, to to give it to give it a try in the cinema in particular. Um, so Memoria is playing um, in the UK currently um, at um, Filmhouse. I know for sure, probably GFT as well. Um, so and Scotland. So give it a give it a check. This is going to be the most important thing you do at film school, your graduation film. It's about a relationship that hopefully many people can relate to. Presumably there's a film next, but... No, the whole team students. And no one's giving a direction? No. Sounds fairly typical for an art school. Okay, let's hold it there. Right, what were your thoughts? It excites me. It excites me. Don't say something that you could say after watching anything. It's great. It excites me. Say something specific, honestly. Just think about what makes you happy, what you're interested in, and it will translate. I'm struggling to recognize whether I'm missing Anthony or whether I'm missing having a companion. I really want to be able to talk to someone who I don't go to film school with mm -hmm. and who's not my parents. Where's my funny girl? But you do realize you're the one who can make it happen. I don't want to show life as it plays out. I want to show life as I imagine it. That's all you can hope for, isn't it? I'm storing, I'm gathering experience <laughs> and information, and I'm waiting to find what I want to do with that. going to review is Joanna Hogg's uh, Souvenir Part 2, second part of her two film. Um, so Souvenir Part 1 came out a few years ago, a couple years now, um, and we reviewed it on this uh, program uh, twice, once through the Edinburgh International Film Festival and uh, once again as team here. Uh, Simon, you saw it at the London Film Festival, uh, as did I, uh, when we came up to Edinburgh. Tell us a little bit about this film. Yeah, so the souvenir part two uh, basically picks up where the souvenir part one left off. Um, Julie, played by uh, Honor Swinton Byrne, is recovering from the the, the kind of shock of uh, her partner's death in the first film and the double life that was revealed of his life as a drug addict. So Julie is gradually returning to the world and working on her final project for film school um and and she she sort of her artistic and aesthetic sensibilities have been influenced by her experiences with with her Anthony her partner um and so she's struggling to finish this new film she's kicking against the kind of institution of the film school as she comes up with these new ideas as she focuses on this this new 
part of her filmmaking career. Uh, and yeah, we follow her through her experiences with her fellow students and with the filmmaking process. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you thought of this film right off the bat. If you like, because we didn't, you weren't part of our first, did you like the first film? Um, that, or, or how was your impression of the first film? And then when you saw the second one, how do you feel? Yeah, I, I remember being surprised by the first film because I, mm -hmm. I thought it would be kind of solidly sort of period drama, middle-class uh, fare um, that I wasn't really interested in, like posh people having problems. But there's a real kind of, I found a real sincerity at the core of it and a real naturalism to how it depicted uh, its protagonist's lives that really pulled me in. Uh, and I really got a lot out of it. Um, and if anything, I, I think The Souvenir Part 2 is even stronger. I think by focusing more on uh, Julie's character and developing Julie's character, it, it really gets to something essential about that character's experiences, as well as the experience of being young in England, in England specifically, and, and of coming of age in this, this culture of the, uh, I think it's set in the 80s, coming of age in this culture in the 80s of, of kind of English emotional repression. Um, so it really captured something essential for me. Uh, I was really, really quite moved by it. Yeah, I, I you know, it's interesting because we, when we reviewed it previously, I was one of the only people, as I recall, who liked the souvenir part one, and I, I, I really, I felt the same mm. way. I felt, I felt, I really liked it. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I particularly like stories of 1980s, and I, you know, and also don't have a problem supposedly with, I suppose, with looking at stories of privilege. Um, if it's, yeah. if done, if done with an eye that I feel like is, you know, I, I like, I love the film Metropolitan, I love Wood Stillman films and whatnot. Um, but if done in a way that I think is observant or aware, um, aware of oneself. And I thought that with souvenir part one, that was happening. And I actually, you know, I, I've read a lot of, of reviews who, who people really liked souvenir part two way better said the sequel is way better yeah. than the first. I don't know if I feel that way, um, but because maybe, I, and I, I don't know why, I think perhaps I was enjoying the story of Anthony and, um, and Julie a lot. Um, and also the subtlety of the story of going to film school uh, as part of that, where I think then the filmmaking process becomes so much more of the, storyline in the second half well it's always it's always a main thread you know this coming of age of a you know a, a woman you know learning to learning to be a filmmaker being a filmmaker that part of you know but also having this you know romantic you know tragic romantic you know life I enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed the second and um I won't spoil anything about the end or something but I think maybe the last scene puts a slight kind of did just it kind of hit me too much over the head you know with with um yeah I know what you mean film you know this is a film about film um yeah. that will will all honestly consistently bug me so I you know I was going really happy with it I also would like to say I've always been a Richard Ayoade fan 
the the um the scene in the first one uh was the my favorite part of that and uh I don't know if he had more I think people have said oh yeah he had more of a role in the second film this character he plays a kind of a, a a mentor dash classmate of Julie. Just, just as one of the people who didn't like the souvenir that you alluded to. I also I want to point out I don't think you had a particularly representative example, representative sample <laughs> on the show because you had me and Ren, and I think we both kind of like took quite badly against it. But um Richard Ayoadi was one of the best things in the first film. The fact that he is present quite a lot in the trailer actually makes me a lot more interested in this film because I've got a lot of time for him and his performance in the last one. Unfortunately, I didn't get around to seeing it before we recorded, which is why I'm not... I can't give my opinion yeah. about whether it's turned my opinion around <laughs> on the souvenir or not. He's terrific. In, he's, he's really terrific in, in this film. Um, I, I wouldn't treat the trailer as entirely representative of how much screen time he gets. Uh, so don't go in expecting an Iowati film. But he is, he's, he's so good. He's so good at being that prick character. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, and perhaps a little comic relief or just these one-liners or whatnot, it, which is, again, yeah. the same, whether or not it, he had that much of a role in the first one, it was enough that, obviously, the trailer editor knew this was, you know, this is this is such an, these are such great scenes. And they are. But I think, again, this is the, back to, like, a, the subtlety of, this story of this woman filmmaker, and I think I, I I definitely read this somewhere else, and but I but I would like to parrot that back and say that back from what I read from a view is that I really loved her, like her insecurity through making the, these films at this age and discussing that and how um, and 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 that to me was really beautiful because it it's it's certainly how we all are, but we, we focus all, all the time on male directors and their, you know, their, their, you know, their complications of how, uh, you know, but, but how, how even her parents or, or, you know, her, 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 her teachers are going to treat her differently and how internally you're dealing with that, um, you know, apart from just the grief of, you know, this, this part one, this law, you know, which is, it's absent in terms of the characters really not there anymore. Um, but you know the grief is there, and um, it's much more of a focus on that I think in the in the second one. And um, I, I really I really love that like those those little nuances and those scenes of making a short film and stuff much more than I would say Black Bear. I love to throw that in there. But you know <laughs> these films about making films. This is one of the better ones I've seen, and I'm glad that there it was in this two part. Bit, I just I'd need yeah. to probably see them both again together now, you know, and kind of reflect. Yeah, it, it feels you alluded to this. It feels very personal to Joanna Hogg as the writer and director, um, particularly with what happens in the ending. Um, but it also feels incredibly universal. It like you say, we all live live through this. We all have these relationships we all express ourselves in different ways and the film really gets that across i i i would just be happy to to for this story to continue on screen i'd be happy to see the souvenir part three part four the souvenir souvenir cinematic universe i i just really <laughs> really like living in the world that joanna hogg puts on screen here 
Me too. This is the best review <laughs> we've had in a really long time. Because yeah, I, I just don't. I can just foresee mostly other people disagreeing with us. If yeah, other people, I, I don't. Other, other people. <laughs> yeah, other people can't see the video here, but I'm doing air quotes over other people. We know who you're talking about, but no. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, I was shocked at the like, yeah, the the dislike of it before, but um, but yeah. So since we're the only two who are, who are reviewing it this month, I'm in I'm in luck. It's already 2022 is already going well for me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anyone who liked the souvenir as much as I did. Um. I just don't, I don't think it connects with audiences, but I know that film critics love these films. Like I know, was the Souvenir Sight and Sounds like best film of the year that year? And I think the Souvenir Part 2 is Sight and Sounds best film of the year this year. So it's, film critics love them, but I, I don't know if the sort of wider public enjoy them as much as I do. Yeah, but I guess I don't necessarily love films that film critics love all the mm. time either. I didn't have that film film school experience that she did. But again, these kinds of I think it's just really it's very personal. But as you said, it's just it's very it's very subtle, but it's very um, like it's very sympathetic, very sympathetic to um, to struggles of a a female artist or or you know anyone and um and also just beautifully shot and so i can't you know i i oh, yeah beautifully shot um there's a there's a real softness to the kind of filmic cinematography that that isn't uh the kind of crisp clarity of digital cinematography and it kind of feels feels 1980s and it feels dreamlike um and it's just it's it's like being in a warm bath watching it it's this really <laughs> Just pleasant to watch, like pleasant on pleasant on the old eyeballs. Well, I'm I, I'm I'm fully in agreement with you. <laughs> I will take this Joanna Hogg warm bath again. <laughs> um, if there is a if there is a part three, or and and I'm very much looking forward to a Joanna Hogg, uh, the next Joanna Hogg film. Yeah. Um, from what I've seen, and also. Uh, the the main um, yeah the, the the main character Honor Swittenburn um, you know did did an incredible job I think as well um, as yeah a- I think she's 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 really good in this and I think uh, she'll have a good career if she she continues with this kind of thing yeah and another Tilda Swinton um, <laughs> role again so lots of Tilda Swinton roles um, we're <laughs> we're talking about uh, this this um th- this month. So yeah. more uh, Tilda and more Ota director. <laughs> <laughs> now I will always look at Tilda through that lens um, from now on. Um, so that is Souvenir uh, Part Two, uh, and um, yeah, uh, check it out if you're like Simon and myself. Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. When you botched that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man. We started getting some visitors. every 
universe. Hello, Peter. You're not Peter Parker. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Dr. Otto Octavius. <laughs> Wait, no, seriously, what's your actual name? All right, so the final film that we're going to review this month is Spider-Man No Way Home. I believe it came out uh, in December, but it's um, it's broken box office records, at least in the U.S., and, and quite it's definitely going to be around for quite some time. It's definitely a film... Uh, to watch in the cinema if you like if you like those kinds of Marvel films. Uh, Jim, please uh, please tell us about uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. So, yeah, as you said, it's made an enormous amount of money. Um, at the time of recording, it has made, I think, about $1.5 billion worldwide, um, which in the post-COVID world, and I mean that in the sense that COVID exists, not that we are post-COVID, um, in the post-COVID world, that's an insane amount of money. Um, so I think this is the this is the first kind of like mega behemoth blockbuster. I, I really think since that all started, although you know, no time to die. The Bond film did pretty well. Um, but where this finds us is so is the latest entry in the ever-expanding, ever-growing <laughs> kind of you know like the the blob. It will eventually consume everything. Um, Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Tom Holland playing Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and this is all very firmly set in the after as the last one was the aftermath of Avengers Endgame, um, which of course was the kind of the, the the huge event in 2019 with this cinematic universe, and basically it finds him in a situation that was put into, I would say the end of the last film, but I think it was actually a mid credit scene, as tends to be the thing in these films, um, where his identity has been revealed. Um, and it shows him coping with that and the impact that has on his family, his relationships. Um, and basically the, the setup of the film, which goes off in the trailers, which I'll stick to for this intro bit here, but we're going to go into kind of spoilers after I've done this. Um, he goes to Doctor Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and you know, crossover role as happens um, in the Marvel films, and basically asks him to cast a spell whereby, you know, he gets his life back. People forget that he is uh, Spider-Man, but then he introduces all these qualifiers. Oh well, what about Aunt May? Oh well, what about MJ? Oh well, what about? And it basically screws the whole thing up, and we get. Um, this multiverse idea that has been developing in the last few of these films and some of the TV series, and we start to get appearances from people from other universes. And I think the the ones that pop up in the trailer is what I'll stick to for this initial segment. So, for instance, uh, Doc Ock, Otto Octavius, played by Alfred Molina, who, of course, is well known for doing that role in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 all the way back in, I think it was 2004 that film came out, I want to say. Um, but basically, the first cinematic iteration of Spider-Man is one of the ones who appears. And I think in the trailer, you get a very brief glimpse of uh, Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin, which was Spider-Man in 2002. Uh, and also in the trailer, you see a couple of other villains that pop up from Andrew Garfield's kind of tenure as Spider-Man with the Amazing Spider-Man films. And that's basically where we're at. Basically, this is a massive problem that 
uh, Spider-Man needs to solve with the help of Doctor Strange and MJ and his friend Ned Leeds, who have been established in this uh, the Tom Holland run of the films. Um, but with that, I think we slapped down a massive spoiler alert. There's quite a lot to talk about in this film. And I, I am quite strongly of the opinion that I don't think you can properly critique what this film... Because there's a lot of things it does well, and I, I enjoyed this film. Um, there is a lot of things it doesn't do, um, but I think it's very hard to... It's very hard to describe meaningfully what we're talking about without getting into it. Um, but I'm interested to see what the two of you thought, thought about it. I enjoyed this overall, but I do have a lot of problems with it. But I kind of enjoyed it in a smashing my action figures together type of way. <laughs> it's the way that I put it to a lot of people, um, which sounds a little bit like damning faint praise because it, it, I think it kind of is in this context. But like, I, I will keep my powder dry for the moment and just open up to you. What, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? Did it work? So I saw this, I think, maybe the day it came out or the day after it came out in uh, um, uh, an independent cinema in South London, um, which sort of for the past two years I've been going there has been quite empty. It's been like me and five other people in the screen, um, whether that's to do with the kind of films that I go see or the pandemic or whatever, a combination of the two. I went to see this the day it came out or the day after, um, and it was the screening was packed. It was full of people. Um, it was easily the most packed screening I've been to since the pandemic started. I think every seat was filled, um, and the, the the audience just loved it. Like they went wild when so when uh, Matt Murdock's Daredevil from the Netflix MCU show turned up people cheered uh when when the big things happen when toby Maguire's peter parker turns up when andrew garfield's peter parker turns up they were cheering and yelling and uh it got to me as well i started clapping when toby Maguire turned up because i love those those spider-man films back in the day and um, there was even when when uh uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Norman Osborn, he says at one point, I'm something of a scientist myself, which I understand is, has become something of a meme since, since those original films. One dude just stood up and clapped on his own for like a minute. Um, I have a comment so I, on that moment. We'll come back to that. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I just, I find it hard to be very critical. I find it hard to have a critical eye on this film because of that kind of cinematic experience, because the people around me loved it. They were having so much fun. Uh, and I, I was swept up with that. I had fun with it as well. So it's it's hard to have a critical eye on it. I just, as an experience, it was just a great time at the movies. Um, I'm sure watching it back, like watching it on a TV at home, I'll have a different view of it. But for now, I just had such a good time in the cinema. Um, that I really enjoyed it. That sounds like the best experience ever. I mean, I I, I remember watching Gone Girl and like Union Square <laughs> and, you know, so much fun because it was packed audience. I watched it in Florida on where there were like literally 10 people. But right. um, and I have to admit, I have not seen a Spider-Man except the first one perhaps and i don't know how and where and when i do believe i did know <laughs> no because when i saw toby Maguire, i was like oh i recognize you so <laughs> even 
Parkin. That's my... the guy. That's Peter Parkin. <laughs> my Two own pastas. Of all of that only started to happen, or only started to be recognizable, what you were just mentioning of that experience um, from seeing him and then got that whole thing once Andrew Garfield, because I, I, I didn't live under a rock completely during that time, you know, for the last 20 years. But um, I, you're familiar <laughs> that there have been, you're aware that there have been other Spider-Man films. Yes, <laughs> this, is, this is a thing that exists. I literally thought there was three, though, but <laughs> there was nine, and this is the third of you know of, of the current. But yeah, I, I mean, in general, I thought it was quite fun, and uh, I was laughing. I took my mom, and um, you know, she remembers more of them than I do, um, and I, I, you know, I I, I definitely enjoyed that bit of it. But again, I probably have very little to offer in terms of critical things, except experiencing a film I don't normally do like enjoy and I just liked the the, the three of them kind of um I, I just thought I thought that was a really great banter you know of 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 that that bit once once we got to the three Spider-Mans so it was fun yeah um yeah, I think I think what I can say is um I think it's major success is that as a film, it is the sequel to at least two MCU Spider-Man films, as well as other MCU films. It's also kind of a sequel to the original Spider-Man trilogy and the Amazing Spider-Man films uh, and the Doctor Strange films. It, it, as a sequel to all these films, it's amazing how well it holds up on its own. Like, it doesn't feel overladen. It doesn't feel too baggy. Um, it, it works. It works as a film uh, for me, and I think that's you got to say something about you got to say something for a film that manages to carry all that weight and still succeed as a a story about Peter Parker. I, I I'd agree with that. I I think I am surprised. <laughs> I think the thing is, I'm surprised about what about this film works for me, and I think what you've just mentioned there, Simon, is how it works. I think it's surprising to me once, you know, I've criticized a lot of films recently for doing um, nostalgia bait fan service, right? And it's not even mm. necessarily nostalgia bait. It's like, kind of like this reliance on, you know, iconography of other better things, right? And this film does do that a little bit. I'll come back around to that. But, you know, I think about something like Free Guy, where there's a, you know, like, screw it, I'm going to spoil that film for anybody who's not seen it. <laughs> there's a fight where, like, he uses a lightsaber in Captain America's shield. It's just like, oh, God, just fuck off. Like, it's just, like, not, like, you know, like, give me an absolute break. And I've had a real go at Ghostbusters Afterlife, which came out just before this, for kind of relying on this idea of what a previous film was rather than actually engaging with, you know, what people actually liked about it. They're trading on people's memories of it and kind of the idea that this is a, something they can point at and recognize. There is a little bit of that here, but I found it surprising the parts of it that worked. And since we're going in fully with spoilers here, I was surprised the amount of closure and things like that they gave to the other two Spider-Man characters, right? So unlike you, man, I've seen like I've I've seen pretty much all of the MCU films, bar a couple of the the more recent ones, uh, which were in the, I haven't seen Shang-Chi and um 
like Windows the Windows but the rest of them, I've, I, the rest of them, I've, I've largely seen. And I have seen all the other Spider-Man films, including the Andrew Garfield ones. And I was like, Andrew Garfield is really good here. Like his performance is really good. I enjoyed it, and I think was surprised like the amount of closure gave to that character when his second film was. I don't think it's as bad as it's made out to be, but I mean, it, it wasn't well received. It got could that that kind of series of films got cut off at the knees and it didn't really go anywhere. I'm surprised the things that work. To focus a little bit more on the film itself, though, uh, rather than kind of like how it, you know, um, is in conversation with other, like, Spider-Man films, there are certain things I am going to criticise it for. And one of them, and this is kind of common to a lot of the Marvel films for me, not all of them, um, but I think it particularly struck me here, even in comparison to, I would even see the last Tom Holland Spider-Man film, just how visually bland this film was. I was really, really disappointed mm -hmm. with it. You know, like there's a much trailed bit in the trailer where there's a fight on a freeway with um, Alfred Molina's Doc Ock. Looks horrendous. I'm sorry, like it looks like a car commercial. It is just the most unimaginative, like lighting framing setup that you could imagine for that scene. It's just not interesting. The final battle occurs in this like murky fog, and it's just I I found it really weird because like the the the, the manner in which I like this film and overall like I I had fun with this film. Right, it, it's it's not it's not a bad film. I actually think it's a reasonably good film, but. I said I liked it, you know, kind of like smashing my action figures together kind of way. And I stand by that. And it's kind of both faint praise and actually quite genuine as well in terms of like, you know, it's fun. As a kid, I like smashing my action figures together. But it's just with all of these tools at your disposal, right, this, con this mental concept of the multiverse, which I'm surprised is in blockbuster films, right? I mean, if, if somebody had predicted that back when... Iron Man came out in 2008, I would have thought they were mental, that this is where this would have ended up, right? So the very fact that they're going with that and audiences are engaging with it, and you've got all of these different, this, this sort of like real chocolate box of villains from, let's be frank, other better Spider-Man films in my view, but, you know, let's let's uh, not go into that too deeply right now. The fact that it then comes out looking so dull, I just find bizarre. And I even relate it back to the previous one where you had um, Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, Mysterio and kind of like, there was all the study, you know, and they updated it in a way so they, they reduced some of the comic book silliness, which they still try to skew away from a little bit. Um where visually it was really quite imaginative. I'm not saying it necessarily always looked amazing, but like a, a lot of the illusions that were being created, like it was quite interesting. It, like I think it was quite well done. This one, I found really bland. I found it really bland to look at. And I think it's just as well that it was kind of fun outside that because I don't think it's, like on that level, I don't think it's got a lot to offer, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it's got that kind of flat look of 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 stuff filmed on a green screen and then digitally inserted later um which obviously most of it probably is um filmed on a green screen in atlanta or filmed on location on a set in atlanta and then cg composited to death later on um so i i, I agree with that jimmy it, it does look not particularly memorable um 
which which is a shame because you think back to the Sam Raimi films and those images of Spider-Man swinging through New York streets are still really evocative and still really hold up um, and still feel and look better um, than the stuff in this film. I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. And... And, and look, don't get me wrong. I think that the, the Sam Raimi, like the Raimi Spider-Man films, the films I've kind of started to come around on a bit. I saw Spider that Spider-Man. I saw it in the cinema when it came out, and I really didn't like it. I did not take to it. I liked Spider-Man two, and then Spider-Man three. You know, like maybe yeah. the less said, the better overall. But I do, I do you know, <laughs> it has its plus points here and there. But it, it's more a case of there was something visually distinctive about it, right? I think back to kind of the the end of the first Spider-Man where you got Willem Dafoe fighting Tobey Maguire and there was something about the the atmosphere there, the way it was shot, the way, it, you know, it felt like a kind of like an evil, you know, um, evil dead swing. It felt like a Sam Raimi film, right? And that's yeah. less the case with um, the Andrew Garfield ones in the middle, but there was at least like a vision there. Uh, I at least felt like, I, you know, there was something, somebody was trying to express something visually. I don't really feel that with these. And that doesn't mean that you can't have fun with it. It doesn't mean you can't engage with it, but it does make them a lot less memorable to me. It does make them a lot more disposable. And I think the Sam Raimi films in particular are quite a good example. And I, I think now they, they probably will have dated a bit. And I don't mean that just in the visual effects terms. I think there's, there's something about the way comic book films were approached then where I think it, it will be a li- look a little bit dated. But even as somebody who didn't particularly like those films, I found them, looking back on them, more interesting than this film. And the last thing that I'm going to mention, just for for now anyway, that surprises me a little bit about these films, and I find a little bit, and I find a little bit sad in a way, is Spider Man is a massive character, right? It's one of the few. He's one of the few kind of like comic book characters. That historically, anyway, um, has cut past the idea of being a comic book character, right? He's kind of in that tier of Superman, Batman, whereby kind of like your average non-comic book person has latched onto them as a, right, okay, right, great, yeah, oh, what, there's a new one? Yeah, sure, let's go see it. And I find it interesting and weird that the last one, Far From Home, and this one they are completely subservient to the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a, as a whole thing. I think you'd find it very hard to, to jump into this, and it's very much in service of that. In fact, and, and that's not to say there isn't like some nice little bits of character work. Like I think the relationship with Zendaya's MJ and Tom, like, I think that's good. I think they've got good chemistry together. I think that works quite well. I was surprised how well the scenes with all three Spider-Man Spider-Man worked. Um, you know, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't exist, but it is very much in service of the overall picture. You get more out of this and you understand more of what's good. I mean, I mean, just <laughs> think about this film. To get the most out of it, you need to have watched probably like two Avengers films, six other spider six, seven other Spider-Man films, and like you know, I mean, like arguably even Doctor Strange even understand what the hell's going on with that. It's just it, I find it bizarre that that's the situation with a a Spider-Man film. It's like having a Batman film release where you need to have watched a film about you know 
like three Superman films, two other different Batman films. I, I just, it, it's an odd one for me. And I think it's unfortunate that the film that you need to do that for is the most visually bland of the lot that it's referring to. But Well, it's interesting that you could that you say that because I know at the moment they're filming uh, Batgirl in Glasgow. Like they're filming it in the city centre. Um, and similarly, it seems like DC are going down this kind of multiverse route um, of I believe that Michael Keaton is coming back to play Batman in in this Batgirl film, as well as in like The Flash or something. Um, so I think what studios have taken from the success of the MCU and of Into the Spider Verse is that like people just want multiverses. Like that's what audiences want. They want multiverses and uh, all these different characters jamming together. Um, on the on the kind of visual direction point as well i think it's it's interesting that sam raimi is going to direct doctor strange 2 uh which i think is out next year so it'd be interesting to see if sam raimi can bring any visual uniqueness to that um but people said the same thing about uh chloe Zhao doing uh eternals and i haven't seen that but uh it wasn't well received and apparently it just looks as flat as everything else and i think this this sort of gets me onto my problem with the MCU, which is it's always gesturing towards the next thing. It's always saying, yeah, we didn't satisfy you fully in this one, but this next one, this next one will be great. This next one is what you want to watch. It's always setting up, you know, it's it's just it's just one long post credit scene now setting up the next thing and the next thing after that, just to, to keep you on the hook, to keep you coming back. Like an episode of Lost or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all building towards the cliffhanger. That will be the resolved in the next one. But it's never resolved, and it's never going to be resolved. And I... Yeah, I, I and actually, it's interesting you made the Lost reference, because I've actually been re-watching Lost recently, but... Um, I'd argue that they do a lot. I, I'm actually giving it, I'm going to give Lost a break after I watch this because I'm getting more out of it uh, watching this time. But that's a, that, that's a story for a different time. But in terms of th- this film, I, if, you, if you are an MCU fan, I personally think you should be ringing the alarm bells that they feel the need to import all this stuff into a Spider-Man film to make it properly compelling. And I think it's interesting so that you reference... Into the Spider Verse, which was the animated film, which I think it was was it two or three years ago now. It was quite recent, anyway. But that's probably for me the best Spider Man film, right? And I, I got, yeah. I, I really like that, and I think it's something that convinced them that they could do this. But the thing is, part of what I liked about Into the Spider Verse is, is it's incredibly visually interesting, and I realized that you've probably got more freedom potentially in animation to do that but the way they use that with the different like animation styles per spider person from different euros was really really inventive now i'm not saying that they should have done that here it wouldn't have worked in this context but it doesn't show it doesn't show imagination on the same level like yes it's fun and it's you know quite cool to see all these guys on screen together but that's it it doesn't go any more than it doesn't really go any further than that. Clearly, it doesn't need to, you know, like, um, you know, the audiences are connecting to it. It doesn't need to, but I just, it, I, part of what annoys me about these films is that I find my experience with them anyway 
is they're always just good enough. They're just good enough for me to not really tear into them. And it's yeah. just a case of I want for something which is such a sure bet now, I want, I really want more out of these. I want somebody to just swing for a fence on one of them because with each passing one, we've had like whatever it is, like nearly 30 of these. Like somebody do something different, just something. And this one, the biggest one that's probably the biggest one that's not an Avengers film at this point, it didn't. It had all the tools to do it and it shows very little imagination for me. It shows some smarts about how tough characters interacting. As I say, it does a lot of things well. But I really, I think I want more from these. And I think given the level of resources at their disposal and how safe a bet some of these films are, I think it's fair to expect more from them as well, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like you can't, you just can't do something distinct in that uh, MCU behemoth now. I feel like um, when Edgar Wright tried to do it on Ant-Man, you know, he was dismissed. He was fired or whatever. Um, and Ant-Man came out, for me, like super bland, like one of the worst MCU films. Um, just it's, it's all hyper-produced. They know what people want and they make it, like you say, Jim, just good enough. Just good enough that it's, it's fine. It's good. Um, and people keep going to see it. Well, um, I'd love to know after the show is over which Spider-Mans to check out since I've missed the first eight, um, as well as uh, next time warn me because I want to go to that experience. Uh, I, I want to go to a, a film experience like you did, Simon, where people are cheering and and, and whatnot because that sounds like a great yeah. So I think I think I've been down on the MCU as a whole here, but like I say, that experience of watching it with that audience was was great for me it was comparable to i think the last time i sort of had that experience was i went to see a uh, get out in a majority black audience in peckham in south london um and the way that audience received that film was terrific an experience i'll never forget um and it was sort of it was it was comparable to that seeing uh these spider-man fans these fans of this character who followed these various iterations of this character react to to, to what they'd put on the screen was well, a great experience. But part of this MCU behemoth that I, I'm philosophically opposed to. Yeah, I'm all about having lived in New York for you know over ten years. I'm all about finding the right cinema for mm. you know that, that kind of experience. And you always go to Times Square. You want if you want a lot of loud, you know, like if you don't want to actually hear the film and you want the film experience or whatever. But I did see Brokeback Mountain in Chelsea, which was perfect, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> perfect. Um, but yeah, those kinds of experiences, yes, uh, worth worth all worth the regardless of the quality of the film. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's certainly a uh, it's one records in terms of box office, which is good for cinema. Uh, so yeah, glad that glad that's happening. The one last thing I just want to mention on this one, because I, if Simon has been down on the MCU, he thinks that I've probably been like beating it with a club. Um, <laughs> the one thing I do want to say about this film, just to finish off, because I haven't mentioned explicitly, Willem Dafoe is fantastic in this. I lapped up every second of him in this film. Oh, he's great. 
Yeah. Like Alfred Molina's I mean, good too, but yeah. Alfred Molina doesn't have quite as much to do. So, yeah, Defoe is is fantastic. He's having the time of his life. Yeah, and and honestly, I honestly I got that's probably one of my my favorite parts of it. Like his his performance because it'd, it'd be very easy for it to be very empty. Like it's been years since he did it, and like you know it could be a bit part, but no, he's in it a lot. And yeah, honestly, I love I, I read, every second of him on screen. I read that he only agreed to do it on the proviso that he could do all his own stunts. Like he wanted to do the physical <laughs> yeah. stuff as well, and just a mech. Good for you, man. <laughs> like. <laughs> All right, so Spider-Man, we spoiled it all, um, but uh, check it out if you if you if if you if you haven't already. Uh, Spider-Man: No Way Home, still out in cinemas. And that's about is that us for January 2022. I did not mention because normally I have a ton of film events to um, to push. Uh, in the Edinburgh or Scotland area, but um, we were uh, in December. We we did not. We were not able to finish our uh, documentary screenings at Summer Hall, Framing Japan, and coming mid February to be announced the dates when we can. Um, we'll be running a, a two films by Kazuhiro Soda, uh, his second film um, ever, a mental, and his final film, his recent film that was premiered in the 2020 Berlin Alley Zero. Both of those are Scottish premieres. Um, we're really excited about this program. If you don't know uh, anything about Kazuhiro Soto's uh, documentary films, they're incredible. They're, uh, he's built this own language of observational documentary cinema. Um, really, really heartwarming stories. Um, so check it out on our website and join us um, very likely the third week of February uh, because we'll be hopefully continuing our doc screenings monthly from then. Um, this was our first doc screenings uh, in person again, and hopefully going to be doing that on a regular basis if you're a documentary fan. Um, apart from that, uh, what do you guys, well, I know what you're looking forward to, Jim. Uh, what are you guys looking forward to in your life, cinematically, whatever? So I am looking forward to Glasgow Film Festival. Um, I'm going to be covering that and and hopefully getting more uh getting more knowledge and more involved in the sort of glasgow film scene now okay. that i'm here uh so i'm i'm looking forward to that yeah well in my case like obviously the, the impending fatherhood and life changes forever um i before that happens i am hoping i'm i'm meant i'm attending the now completely virtual uh sundance film festivals press so i'm hoping to get a few things in in there um although if the baby comes early then that's probably all going to be shot to hell but at the moment at the moment i am intending to to watch a few things uh at that and when i've watched the past couple of years i've done that and they've ended up popping up on the show and some some films that have been very well received some that have, have not <laughs> black bear has been mentioned it's for i think the second or third show in a row um <laughs> so i'm looking forward to that and we'll see and then you know just continuing to continue to try and get to the cinema uh while i can because it will become a lot more difficult in a few weeks <laughs> Absolutely. And congratulations again. I'm um, certainly trying. I, I, I think I've recently, as of l last week, they reshifted the Berlin Alley. But uh, my goal is to actually hopefully get to the Berlin Alley. That's one of the first one of the first or only film festivals I know of right now that is going forward in person as Glasgow Great. going forward in person. 
I think it's going to be hybrid. Um, yeah. It's a bit unclear. They're doing it online. Press it, it, it has it has in person bits. I think the press stuff is entirely it, the press stuff is entirely online, and then the festival yeah. itself is hybrid. So it's still it's still got in person elements at the moment. Anyway, there we go. So that's it for our show for January 2022. Thank you for joining us. As always, uh, reach out to us uh, at Cinetopia on Twitter, at Cinetopia Hub on Instagram, or Cinetopia Show at gmail.com And thanks again. See you next month. <laughs>